Well, it's good to be back, church. It's good to be here. And uh, it is good to gather and be around His Word. Uh, may, um, I had started writing some things down that were fresh on my heart. And, uh, and I feel like the Lord reminded me uh, of some, some things we needed to finish up uh, from before I was away. So I want to just go ahead and review again. I want to say a statement to you. Maybe you'll remember, track right with me. But we are the inside, outside, upside down kingdom. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Right? Everything that you see, everything that you know, it is opposite to God's kingdom. And it's becoming more and more evident, isn't it? Aren't the things of God becoming much more opposite to this world than they used to be? And I've been stating in these sermons that some of the older ones that were in school, you know, even in school, right, when you had prayer, right? I mean, even public schools, right? It wasn't illegal to pray. Maybe, uh, you know, maybe you weren't, you know, worshiping and down on your knees praising Jesus, but it wasn't illegal to be in your school to pray. You know, you could express that right. That was your right, and now it's, it's become illegal, right? So we must see that the word of God and the kingdom of God, the separation is growing between this world and God's kingdom. And so I just want to review again what Jesus said. He said in John 18, 36, my kingdom, everybody say his kingdom, is not of this world. And the thing is, we live in this world. Who's with me? Just get a show of hands or in your heart. Who's with me that we live in this world? Anybody here living in this world? That should be every hand. We live in this world, and yet we, like Christ, are not of this world. Now, um, Satan, in Matthew 4, we don't, we're not going to turn there, but Satan took Jesus, and he gave him three temptations. And what he was doing the heart of the temptations, without going through all of them, was what? It was trying to get Jesus to focus on what? The here and the now. He tried to get him to focus on his own uh, impulses and his own needs, and ultimately to make him something here on the earth, right? If you look and you break it down, that's its own sermon. But if you look at what Satan was doing, he was trying to get Jesus to see here and now and, and forget who he really was and what he was here for. And Jesus, obviously we know, he, he passed every test and he responded with the word of God to Satan. And the Bible says in the same chapter, Matthew 4, just a few verses later, that Jesus comes out of this temptation. He's encouraged, our word says. The angels come, they encourage him. Uh, and he comes out, and it says, From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. So we have this kingdom of the world that Satan is, was offering Jesus. And let me tell you something. If he was offering Jesus the world, that is the same temptation that he's offering each one of us. And you know, it doesn't seem so evil on the surface. When, when he said to Jesus, why don't you turn these stones into bread? That doesn't sound that evil, does it? You know, Satan will try to get you to do earthly, worldly things that don't seem 
uh, seemed so evil on the surface, but the heart of it was what? It was using really who Jesus was, who was a, a supernatural uh, being, right? He's in a man's body, but he's God, but he was here to live a man's life. He was not here to be supernatural for his own benefit. He was selfless. We're going to get into that, but I just want to just review here. You see that what he was trying to do was get him to give himself, to feed self, to take care of his own needs. And so, you know, the real heart of worldliness is not necessarily you doing evil things like the world, but it is really thinking about yourself in any capacity. Now, this is a bit harsh, but it is, this is the truth of the Word of God. In any capacity, if you put yourself and think about even your own needs above God's plans and purposes, His plans and His purposes are supreme, even over your starvation. Amen. Who can amen to that? So, uh, Jesus then goes into Matthew chapter 5, and he begins to talk about the kingdom of heaven, right? And he begins to bring up these opposites, things that we think, things that we understand, which is funny because this is a 2,000-year-old sermon, and it's becoming more and more relevant the more we progress into this future, where the opposite to them was things of the, of the flesh nature, you know, things that they did uh, he said, I'm not looking at how you worship and how you do things in the natural. I'm looking at the heart. You may say you don't murder, but do you hate in your heart? So Jesus began to look deeper, began to look at motives, began to look at intentions. And you see today that the world is actually not only accepting these things, but even embracing them and not even just embracing them, but even praising you for um, doing what your flesh wants. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus began to break this down in Matthew 5, that the kingdom of heaven is a kingdom of doing the opposite of what your flesh wants. Your flesh is a liar, and Satan loves to influence your flesh because it ultimately elevates his kingdom. Satan does have a kingdom, it is fallen, and it will be thrown into the lake of fire. Praise God. That is our word. Amen. It will be done one day. And, in, and I believe outside of time, it's already been done. You can debate with me about that after the church, after service, because God's outside of time. I believe when Jesus said it was finished, it was already done. But the timeline is still unraveling. And so when he said it was done, it was finished, I believe it was. We're, we're watching that happen. And so what I don't want to be a part of is in any way whatsoever elevating his kingdom, the lower kingdom, this earthly kingdom. I want to be elevating the kingdom of God. We are kingdom people. God has called us and given, he gave us a plan and a purpose for his glory. And this is, you know, I didn't even plan on kind of going here, but it is very, 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 I'm going to say it again, very, very, very easy to just go with the flow, isn't it? Isn't it easy to just go with the flow of life? You know, and, and it just like a stream, you know, do you ever wonder why a stream has sharp curves and, you know, and kind of goes like, it looks like a snake, really. You ever look at, 
rivers. I know Steve does from map views, right? And they all look like snakes. It's very rare to see a river that's just straight. The Hudson's fairly straight, although that has some pretty good curves. But, you know, in general, they have curves because whenever the water, you know, hit an obstacle, it just, there's so much force behind it, it would just either go through it, or if it can't, then it goes around it. And it's kind of like our life, isn't it, right? You come up against a force and and in some ways, you're like, well, what can I do? Who's ever said this? Well, what can you do? What can you do, right? And that's okay to say that at the same time, we need to just stop. Sometimes we need to just, just, we need to just take a break. We need to stop, and we need to just say this out loud to the Lord. I don't know what's going on, but I am not going to just go with the flow of life. And I don't know that there, I can help a lot of these things, that, but, but Lord... I need to get my focus on you. I cannot just go with the flow and just end my life and say, Lord, I did the best I could. That's not enough. We must ask the Lord, what is your plan? What is your will? What is your purpose? That is the life that matters. Amen. And so I want to just read a list to you that I had composed, and it's just from some of the concepts in our word. Basically, Man wants to do the opposite. He, it's almost as if mankind tries to do the opposite of God's word on purpose, right? It's almost that we try to. It's like we go out of our way to do the opposite of God's word. And the Bible says that this is not a new thing. When God came and said, I'm going to flood the earth, I have no choice, and Peter tells us, don't think that it was a one-time ordeal. Yes, he promised he wouldn't flood the earth, but what did he say? Peter says, but don't forget that the next phase will be fire, all right? It was a flood first. He's coming again, and they didn't think it was going to happen then. But what did the Bible say? What was the reason that brought that flood and the reason that this fire will come? What's, the Bible says it clearly. We don't have to wonder why God just suddenly did it. It says that man did whatever, I'm just going to say it in 2023 language, whatever he wanted, whatever his impulses said, that's what he did. And he just said, well, this is what I feel. This is what I think. And so he did it. And what happened? All kinds of chaos and craziness and, and, and just beyond, I think, what we really understood, what we can understand and what this sermon will allow today. There was some crazy stuff going on in the world. And the Lord's like, we need to start fresh. And so that is actually, we're on a very rapid path in the earth, at least in the Western world, back to a place where, I mean, you have finally gotten to a place where you can do anything you want except this. What, what's one thing you can't do? You can do anything you want. Anything's okay. And you are accepted, whatever you want to believe, unless you believe in Jesus. Unless you believe in the Word. You're literally allowed to think you're an animal. I already talked about this some weeks ago kitty litter in women's bathrooms, but God forbid you carry a Bible through the hallway. Kitty litter, think about this, kitty litter in the women's bathroom, but if you have a Bible open during class, you will be expelled. You will certainly be told to put it away. You might be expelled when you continue to rebel, but still, nonetheless, do you guys see the insanity here? And so the Bible says in Romans 1, they exchanged the truth for a lie. And so I've been meditating on this, been meditating on these concepts, and I, and I really believe that we need to read the Word, and I know that in this church we do, but we need to really just read the Word again and believe it. We need to have the Word become a part of us. 
because these concepts in the Bible, they're going to get even more distant. I know that sounds crazy, but can you, can you guys imagine the world we live in today 20 years ago even? I can't. You know, I wasn't there in the 50s and 60s when some of you were, right? Some of you were there, but in, in the 80s, looking to now, I couldn't imagine some of the things that we accept as normal today uh, and are so opposite, not just, even if I didn't have the Bible, they're just opposite of what I know inside my human nature as being right. I said it, that they would do it, and I knew, and I even, it's on some, it's probably on a sermon from eight years ago. I said, you watch it, eventually they're going to say that, um, we'll just keep it G-rated here, but over 18 and under 18 would be okay one day. And uh, sure enough, right, there's a TED Talk that kind of went viral because a woman came out and said, we need to learn to embrace these people as normal. This is just something they can't help, right? And then I talked to Michael one day, and he said that even the police, and, and well, in official capacity for that matter, uh, they changed the names to MAPS, right, which minor attracted persons. So we even, we changed the name so that it could be less aggressive and would make more, you know, just would get used to that. Oh, he's just, that's just a map. You know, it used to be called a pedophile. And everybody has a, that's a derogatory term. But that's too derogatory because now we're making that person feel uncomfortable. I know it's hilarious. And yet this is what, if, if you didn't believe in Bible prophecy before, I hope that in the last 20 years, your eyes have been open that the Bible is literally unfolding before our eyes. And, you know, we, we all, every generation assumes it's going to and hopes that Christ is coming back, but it certainly seems that things are on a rapid pace towards that flood time that Jesus prophesied would come again. And so these are just some of the concepts that we must get in our spirit, that the way up is down. Right? The way that we get to Christ is to what? Is to go low. The lower you go, the closer you, the higher you go up. Isn't that amazing? And I'm not going to preach at all these concepts, but I'll just go through the list here. The way out is in, right? You want out of a situation, I got to get into his presence. The way to be filled is to be empty. The way to receive is to give. The way to be strong is to be weak. The way to live is to die. The way to be great is to be least. The way to be first is to be last. The way to be honored is to serve. The way to be forgiven is to forgive. The way to share Christ's glory is to suffer. The way to have faith is to let go. The way to be wise is to become a fool. And the way to know God is to become a child. He also tells us concepts like love your enemy, turn the other cheek, give more than is asked of you, and so on and so on. Self-focused must go away and Jesus' selflessness must become who we are. I summed it up this way, and uh, apparently it made an impact because Rick has now quoted this line back to me a couple of times these last few weeks, so I'm going to say it again. Basically, just do the opposite of what your flesh wants to do. Your first inclination in your, in your flesh that wants to react, just, just filter it through the Word of God, and you're going to find... Right away, just as even I said during prayer, soul and spirit, is this me or is this God? 
And very quickly, if you once you discover it's flesh, just do the opposite, and you will be doing what God's asked us to do. And it must be noted that you cannot do this on your own. This is a Holy Spirit thing. This is a Holy Spirit thing. You know, I was just meditating on this idea that um, when you get saved and you are a devout saved, I mean, there are those that have prayed the prayer and there are those that have come and gone in those services and I'm, it's not for me to decide where salvation begins and ends, okay? I am not saying that they are saved or unsaved. It's really their heart between them and the Lord. But I have seen some that have said a prayer and they appear to go back to living a life that doesn't please Christ or reflect him. And, and that's between him and them on how that journey, how long it takes for it to really click. But who can just testify that moment when it clicks? All right, there is a moment when it becomes real. And maybe that was your moment. Some people, it's that moment. Some people, it takes some time. But there is a moment where you become devout, where you just want the Lord. You're not reading the Word to fulfill some sort of a vow. You're not trying to fill time. You're not doing it because it's right. You want to know God. You want to be in church, not because you're like, I need to, it's Sunday, but because I want to be around God's people. I don't want to be around the world. I want to be around His people, right? And so these things start to happen. Now, it doesn't mean... now. Who was perfect that day? Nobody was perfect when it clicked. I'm still not perfect. You're still not perfect. He's perfecting us to the image of Christ until the moment we pass over. Praise God that he does that. But there is a moment where you became devout, and something supernatural happened at that moment. The Holy Spirit at that moment begins to change you without you even knowing what needs to be changed. You start to talk different and think different, even though you may not have the full concept of it in the Word yet. But let me say this as, as like a slash, all right? If I can just put a slash there, a continuing thought. But what happens? In you, and he does it because of the heart, and that's what I want us to see. It's really a heart after him that cultivates, it creates this, like, this place in our heart for the seed of the Word— all right, you're not even, you haven't even fully understood it yet, but you've heard it. You maybe have read the scripture, but it begins to work in you before your mind even understands. Who can testify that you, we've all been through these things? You were changing, and then, wait, you ready? That's why there's the slash there. Then you read a verse and said, this is what I always knew. I knew that this area, I knew that this wasn't right or this was right. Something in you the Lord began to do. So I want us to see that really when I talk about living an opposite way of this world, you cannot just go out and just try to not be fleshy. It doesn't work. You cannot just say, I'm going to just do the opposite of what my flesh wants to do. You can't mind over matter it. That doesn't work. When you get angry, you know what the Bible says? You ready for this? I'm going to give you a shocker. Get angry. The Bible says when you get angry, be angry. Wait, 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 there's, there's a dot, dot, dot there, though. You can't just not be angry, all right? That's some sort of new age garbage, some sort of fleshy, you know, that you're going to strengthen, you're just going to not be angry. It doesn't work that way. You know what the Bible says? It says, be angry, but do not sin, which means what? It means here's my flesh. It rose up to the surface. I'm aware of it. I'm angry right now, but what am I going to do with this impulse? And you know that Jesus, in the 
three temptations of Christ, I guarantee if there were temptations that he was tempted. The Bible says there were temptations, so what does that mean? Then he was tempted. That means his impulse was, I'm hungry, and he pondered it. But he took that thought, he took it captive, he pulled it down to where it needs to be. He took it out of his brain, he, he, he took those impulses by the power of God, even Jesus Christ walked in the power of the Spirit. We know that. We're not going to get into that whole sermon, but Jesus was led by the Spirit as well. He led him into the wilderness, and he was led to what he did around the world at that time. That's how he lived. That's how we must live. The Holy Spirit will highlight an area in you, and you must let him do it. You must not just try to, all right, I'm just going to you know, get over this. It's getting angry. It's getting jealous. It's getting frustrated, whatever the thing is, and we come before the Lord and we deal with it. I repent for it, even if I have to keep repenting for it and keep repenting for it and keep repenting for it. I'm before the Lord and letting him do the work in me. This is the only way that we're going to live this opposite kingdom that Jesus was asking. And it's clear when Jesus is in Matthew chapter 5, he's dealing with that very place, a place inside you. It's not as much your actions that God is looking to change. We try to change our actions. God is not looking to change your actions. The actions are easy. Just change the intentions, change the motive of the heart. If you can change that place, then the actions will follow suit. Just like if you plant an apple seed, what do you get? An apple tree. So we're not, but you can't just, I mean, I could cut all the apples off a tree and start taping on peaches, and I could look like a peach tree, but I, I'm, I've not changed who I am. I just have changed the way I look, and so the Lord needs us to be ready for this, just dead. You just need to be dead to you. There's no more you. Everybody say, there's no more me. And this is the word of God. Jesus, I want to read, we're going to go into Philippians for the final part of this, of this sermon. It is a Holy Spirit way. It is a word way. You'll find that he begins, the Holy Spirit begins to do the work inside you supernaturally just because of your heart. And then what's he do? What does he lead every believer to? Right to his word. And then he begins to show you, okay, these areas I did these things in you without you even trying. I want you to become aware of these things that I want, the things that I desire. And what happens? At first, you're like, I, I don't like that God. Right? Who's done that? I don't like that concept. And then God begins to deal with the heart, the motive, the intentions. And before you know it, not only do you love his word, even those scriptures that you didn't like, but now you're testifying of, of the power of letting it work in you, like forgiving when you don't want to. You know, at first, as a new believer, you don't like that. That doesn't make sense. That's completely opposite of what the world says. The world says, hold a grudge. They did you wrong. Make them come and say it's sorry. And Jesus is like, before they say sorry, you go and tell them it's okay. You don't need to say sorry. I'll say sorry to you for what I did. And we're like, I didn't do anything. And the Lord's like, well, if you don't think you did anything, let's, I'm just going to take you back to the cross. And why don't we just, re, let's just review this picture because you see me sitting there on the cross. Did I do anything? 
Did I do what you deserve? And we see that this is, is such an opposite way of thinking. Amen. The kingdom of God is so opposite, and I think we just forget. Sometimes we become used to being Christians. Who's, who becomes used to being a Christian? Right? We become used to just knowing God. We love him. We praise him. We put on the Christian music. We read the Bible. We have the Bible study. And then sometimes we forget that there is this way of living that he's calling us to that is not Christian, quote-unquote. It's not just a good, clean lifestyle, but it is a literal opposite lifestyle of the world. Sometimes we have allowed so much world in. It's not that God doesn't love us. I'm not debating salvation or debating heaven. I just want to point out to us that I don't know that we are fully living the life that Christ has called us to. And so let's look here in Philippians 2. I want you just to go with me in your Bible, or we can look on the screen. I'm just going to go through. I picked out five things that Jesus did that we, I don't want, these are not some sort of rules. This is not some sort of pattern. You just do these five things and you'll be perfect. But there are five things I saw in Philippians 2. We're just going to read 3 through 11. It says, don't be uh, selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interest, but take an interest in others too. It says in verse 5, and this is what this is the key here, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. You know, there is no excuse. I've said it many times, and I because I've said it out of my own mouth in my young immaturity. When I make a mistake, I would say something like, Well, I'm not Jesus. And that is so. <laughs> That is so evil, even though it sounds funny now to talk about it. It's so evil because the Bible says you must have the same attitude as Christ. We're going to break that down a little bit more because your translation might say the same mind. The Amplified Classic says the attitude and mind. And so it says, though he was God. Don't forget, Jesus was God. But it says he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to, or, or he, he didn't, you know, depending on your translation, basically I'll just sum it up to say he was God, but he put aside his godness, if there's such a word, for a time to live out a purpose on this earth. That even though he was God, he chose to be, the Bible says here in verse 7, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born a human being when he appeared in human form. And he humbled himself in obedience. Now, this is true humility. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died. That's the key. A criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, verse 9, God elevated him. So he humbled himself down all the way till the Bible says that his image was even so marred he didn't even look like a man. But verse 9 says that God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Wow. 
So the five things that I saw in those scriptures is this. Number one, we can see it says, don't be selfish. Now, the NLT calls it selfish. The King James calls it vain glory. And the Amplified calls it basically anything with wrong motives. Everybody say wrong motives. Jesus was selfless. It says we must have the same attitude as Christ. Christ was selfless. Self, it's very easy to think about self-preservation. It doesn't matter what it is. If it lives, listen to me, if it is living, its number one goal is to do what? This is anything that God has created, including you and I, but we're talking trees, I'm talking weeds, Everything that is living has their number one desire in their code is to do what? To remain living. Right? That's anything. You, if you try, and then you try to stop that, this is, like I said, even something like a weed. When you try to kill it, what does it do? It tries a workaround. Right? Comes up another way. And is, is, this is, I know it sounds so opposite. But we are not flesh. You are not of this world. Jesus came, and even though he was in, his, in a human body, the Bible says, he was a spirit man living in a shell of a body and calls us to live the same way. And I know it's hard, but self-preservation, which is your first fleshly, natural instinct, must be put aside. Self-preservation, at the very, I would say it should become last place, but just for argument, has to become second place to others. Jesus never, ever considered himself over others. And it is a principle that is opposite of this world. This world says, think about self first, right? What about me? What about my happiness? What about my joy? You know, like we're, we're called to love someone. What about loving the unlovable? And you want to love them, but it's like, but I, I want to be loved too. And that's not what the Bible says. Jesus said that he loved us, ready, while we were still sinners. That means that the men that were standing there cursing him on the cross, Jesus is loving them simultaneously. Wow. So the Bible says in Philippians 2, verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. He took upon the form of a servant, and he was made in the likeness of men. It says in Romans 15, 3, I'm going to go kind of quickly just because I don't want to go super long here, but I'm going to go through these five points, and I really want to get through all five. So go quickly here. Just try to track with me. Romans 15, 3 says, Christ didn't live to please himself. So what can we do with Scripture? I can take a Scripture. Now, we don't want to pick and choose and cut and paste around concepts, do we? But I can take a principle from the Word, and I can look at other scriptures and apply the same principle. So that means this. When I read that we must have the same attitude that Christ had, do you think that it applies only to the list in Philippians 2? Or do you think it means what else was in Christ that's not listed here? I must think like Christ and be like Christ. Well, right here in Romans 15, which I can take Philippians 2 where it says, I must have the same mind, same attitude as Christ. I'm going to apply it over here in Romans 15. It says, he didn't live to please himself. As the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O oh God, have fallen on me. That means that the insults of this world, 
They, they must, you must allow them. I know our instinct is to stand up for ourselves. And yet Christ never stood up for himself, did he? He never did. It says he went silent like a, a sheep goes silent before the shearers, right? Jesus went silent. Matthew 20, verse 26 says, But among you would be different. Here's one of the opposite principles. He said, whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. Verse 28, for the Son of Man, this is one of my most quoted scriptures of all time, right? And I say, I always quote this and put myself in there. I came not to be served, but to serve, right? I, Christ came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we can quote it just the way I do of myself. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for others. This is true love. And I want to say this as I always do when I talk about love. Don't let the world define love for you. Let the word of God define love. My word says that life is laying Love is laying your life down. Love is not love. That doesn't mean anything. Love equals love. Love is love. What does that mean? There's no definition in that, if you ever notice that. That's not a definition. Love is not love. Love is, come on, what the word says is what? Laying your life down for another. That's what Jesus said. The greatest love is that he laid his life down. He loved us so much. You can read in John and in 1 John that it was his sacrifice. It says, 1 John 4, verse 10. This is real love. 1 John 4, verse 10 says, this is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. You want to put out a sign on your front lawn that says this is love. Love is, ready? Love is, dash, cross out love, because love is not love. Love is sacrificing, Christ sacrificing himself for us. And my Bible says, I must have the same attitude, I must have the same life that Jesus had, which means that for me to love is a sacrificial love. It is not self, but selfless. Point number two is that we're going to just, these, you're going to see they're kind of going to blend together as well. I'm touching on a lot of them already. I'm going to touch them on, on again quickly. The point number two is to think differently. It says that Jesus had, we must have the same attitude. As I already said earlier, the King James calls it the same mind. The Amplified Classic calls it the same attitude and purpose and humble mind. The point is that Jesus thought differently than the world Therefore, he had a different attitude. You must think differently. If you want your attitude to be different, it's going to have to start in your thinking, right? The way that you treat others, the way that you even hear something from God, and we, we either reject it quickly or we receive it quickly. Come on, we all know ourselves what I'm talking about. Do we take his word and immediately want to do it, or is our first impulse to kind of... Ugh, and, and it's a hard thing, and we're going to have to struggle through it. That is because our mind needs to be changed. You need, a, you need a mind transplant. That means that your flesh mind is ruling too much. And Jesus really, um, 
had a different state of mind. I want to say, everybody say it out loud, state of mind. It is a state of mind. What is a state of mind? Simply, a state of mind is not just you making thoughts, you, the, you thinking and making decisions, but it's a way you think. Do you see what I'm saying? We just, for instance, you might be uh, somebody that, I don't know, you're into cars, right? Somebody's into the outdoors. Now, conversations, you know, you can hear conversations and your, your mind, your, your ear is hearing all the conversations in a party. As soon as someone mentions a car, you know, you run right over and want to become part of this conversation because it's the state of mind that you're in. We must be in the state of mind like Christ was in. A, he, the way his state of mind was is he was, what is the kingdom? What is my purpose? Why am I here? And if, you, if we're so worldly and so fleshy, I'm not talking evil. Again, I want to say it again. It's not heaven and hell here. These aren't heaven and hell things. But this is a state of mind that am I thinking about others? Am I thinking about what does God want from me today? Am, not have I paid my dues? Not have I done enough Christian things today so I can then do what I want to do? Wow, that was a harsh one, but that's such truth, isn't it? We must have the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2 says. Jesus was constantly judging the religious for their internal motives. He gives grace to the hooker, right? He gives them grace, and yet he's dealing with the Pharisees and Sadducees. Why? Because he said it's not what you're doing, it's what you're thinking about. It's, the, it's just... It's your intention. Your intention is to look religious, and that's what bothered God so much. That's why Jesus got so bothered is you're doing all this work to look religious when it would be much better time spent to forget all the religious actions and to, literally, to let me change the heart inside you. For time, you know, we could keep going into this. We're going to keep moving here. And three was that Jesus was humble. But humble is this. I thought, as I was just sitting there and writing the, these notes, I was trying to just really meditate on humility. And I think the world has its own words for humility, its own concept, and I think we do too without even knowing it. I think as a human being, we think of humility as being quiet, right, being kind. But humility is actually, it's not, humility is not a gentle voice. And humility is not ruffling too many feathers. At moments, Jesus did not appear humble. When he went in and turned over the tables and made a whip of cords, there's some King James for you, right? He made a whip, this is what the Bible says, and began to hit the people with a whip, come on, wow, that were selling products instead of being in the temple for God, turned it into, right, this marketplace. Now, he didn't appear humble, and yet Jesus was the epitome of humble. And this is why, you know, the word Joseph, and there's so many types and shadows. Joseph is just another type and shadow. Even his name, the Yosef, right? The Yeshua. You can even see there's so many things as you go through your word that all pointed to Christ. Joseph is an Old Testament character. Uh, he learned humility. The Bible says, even of Paul, that I'll teach him humility. I'm going to teach him in the, in the ways that he will suffer. I'm mix, mixing some translations. 
But humility, ready for this, is being crushed until your identity disappears. That's humility. Humility is not being quiet sometimes when you want to speak, although it will look like that. It's not opening the door. And even when they don't say thank you, right? Don't and I were just joking about this. I had this happen. Sorry for the uh, commercial break, but it's funny. I pulled out on a road. You know, you're like looking. There's traffic everywhere. We're all there. And it's like you just want to get out, right? So this car stops to let me out. So I quickly get out. And then they wave, but not the nice wave. The wave like, hey, where's the wave? And I was like, well, you didn't do it. Now it just you just canceled out everything you did to let me out into traffic because if your intention by letting me out was so that you get a friendly wave back saying thank you, to be honest, I'm a little distracted with traffic still to stop and wave to you right now, just to be honest. And to be honest, the fact that I'm looking at you waving means that this would have been the moment, by the way, that I would have given you the friendly wave, but now, anyway, the point is, humility is not acts of kindness. Humility, like Christ, is humility. Jesus is the picture of real humility, and what does it say? It says, he was humbled all the way to the cross. Humility is no identity. It means it's not just, okay, I'll serve others first, then I serve myself. You're still getting it wrong. It's not, let me put others first, eventually it'll get to me. If you're thinking that way, you still don't have the picture. It's, let me serve, 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 give, 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 and God, you give me whatever you want to give me, when and how and, and so on. My life to live like Christ, that is. I'm not saying we all do this perfectly, and I'm not standing here preaching to you. I'm preaching to myself as well. But that is the humility that Christ had. Paul's life would have appeared meaningless to the world watching, uh, and he becomes this, this uh, amazing, right, this icon to us, right? We, we read the words of Paul, and we're, we're, we're following in Paul's footsteps, and he was a human being, it wasn't just Jesus, but that lived a life like that where he, he just gave, 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 and the world, I mean, they just trampled on him, and he's nobody, and yet uh, now today we're still reading his words, you know, over and over and over again, right? So in Bible studies and on Sunday morning services, and here's a guy who lived a life that was, he's like, I've been beaten and shipwrecked and all this stuff so many times that I've lost count how much I've been belittled and destroyed. And yet, look at what the Lord does in the same way. We read in Philippians that Christ was humbled to the cross, but then he was elevated all the way up to the seat of highest honor. And I read that whole thing there, too. I wanted us to see the power that Christ has. But the picture, what was the path? What was the plan? It was all the way to the cross like a criminal. Paul lived the same life and has been elevated in the same way. He is not God, but God has honored him, amen, as he will honor us if we give our lives for him. We can continue on here. I would encourage you in your own time to read James 4 and just see that it's the humility that really, that's really, I like to say this way, that there is no weakness in God except one. If there was a kryptonite for God, it's humility. 
It seems to be, when I read my word, the one thing that, that penetrates God's armor, and it is a humble heart. I don't care who you are. I mean, like I've said many, many, many times, if Ahab can humble himself at any moment, right? If Ahab can humble himself and the Lord says, have you seen my servant Ahab? Not just Ahab, who is a heathen who humbled himself, but the Lord says, have you seen my servant Ahab? If there was a kryptonite to God, humility it just breaks these barriers. I'm telling you, you want a direct line between you and God, and that's really what, that's why the salvation prayer can be powerful. It could just be words. You're saying like religious words, but the reason it can be powerful, and it was for us in this room, is because it wasn't just words, but it was humility. It was a brokenness, and something happens in that place. It's how Christ lived his life. It's how Paul lived his life, and so on. It's how we must live our life. Finally, for uh, point number four and five is that Jesus was obedient. This is tied right together with humility. It's tied right together with his attitude. Jesus was obedient. John chapter 10, we don't need to turn there, but it says that I sacrifice my life voluntarily, it says in John 10. Why he did it? Voluntarily. That means what? That means that it was obedience to God by choice. And I think that's very important because you could look and say, well, he's Jesus. He had no choice. This was the plan of God. But my word says that Jesus obeyed the Father in doing something that we just can't even understand the weight that was upon him, not just the pain of the cross, but the mental, physical, and spiritual weights he obeyed for us. And in the same way, if we would obey God in that way uh, for our own cross that Christ is calling us to, there is a reward, and you won't even look at your reward. There is a reward that equals other people. There are people that need to be affected, that need to be saved by our obedience. Amen? And as merging right into point number five is that Jesus had rights that he laid down, and that's tied together with his obedience. Do you know that you and I are called sons of God? We are sons and daughters of God. And you know that you and I wear crowns. We cast them before the Lord because apparently we don't care about them. I know Jeannie's going to just say, can I have one of the gems back, though? Right? Just I'll keep one gem. You can have the crown. I just like this one gem special to me. Maybe my boys would be the same. I just want this one stone. You can have the crown. We wear crowns. We wear robes. The Bible says we ride a white horse like Christ. We are regal. We are royalty in God. But my Bible says that Jesus said, even though I'm royalty, and we must have the same attitude, even though we are royalty, you know, Christians that live like royalty in the earth do what? They don't do any good for the kingdom of God, do they? The Christians who flaunt their royalty, do you know they're not liars? When I see these preachers say the things that they say, they're not lying. They are saying truths that we are. We are sons and daughters of God. We are royalty. We are kings under his kingdom. But Jesus in this earth put those things aside for a time for the purposes of God. We are going to live, my Bible says we're going to live and rule and reign with him forever and ever. And that is a truth that can never, ever be taken, no matter what the world does to demean you, belittle you, to crush you. That is a truth that we will, we will come to, it'll be a reality. We're going to know it, really know it. We're going to live it forever. But my Bible says that Jesus pushed those things aside 
Paul, uh, he really got that concept that he knew who he was in the Lord, and he said what? He's like, I can do anything, but it's not all profitable. In fact, even if I do something in freedom, I'm not even being judged by God, but if it were to cause someone else to stumble, I won't do it. Isn't this amazing? How many Christians live like that? How many Christians would say, listen, that's your problem. I'm sorry that you have that problem. I'll pray for you, but it's not my problem. I know we don't say those words, but if you look at Christianity today, I don't see that selflessness. I don't see laying down of rights for the sake of others like Christ did, like we must. The Bible says he emptied himself. It says he stripped himself, the Amplified says. So he had them, and he emptied it. He pushed it off to the side for this purpose. Now, Jesus didn't say, oh, by the way, I'm going to tie together a scripture with Philippians, but Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 39, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. So we can see that the Lord is saying the same thing to us, that we uh, must do and live and act and think, and we can get deeper into this next week, but like Christ did. And if we, these, are, these aren't points like follow these five points and you'll be a good Christian, but these are things that Christ, this is the way he thought, this is the way he acted, this is the way he lived, and the Bible says it's not a suggestion. We're going to get into that next week, that we take the word as suggestions sometimes, or good ideas, or it'll make your life better versus worse. But that's not what the word says. It says, this is how you must live. Praise the Lord. It's 1222, so I think I have to close. Praise the Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you for the truth in your word. I thank you for the life in your word. I thank you for the peace and joy and hope that it brings us. And I pray you'd encourage us today with this, Lord. Put it down deep in our hearts like good seed and good ground. In Jesus' name, amen. Praise the Lord.